welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, guest host Dr. Amber Luong talks with Dr. Jay Karnayak and Dr. Kai Zhao about their article, Inferior Meatus Augmentation Procedure Normalizes Airflow Patterns in Empty Nose Syndrome Patients via Computational Fluid Dynamics Modeling. This edition of Scope It Out is brought to you by Carl Storrs. Carl Storrs enables anywhere care with the new sterile single-use flexible video endoscopes for ENT. As patient treatment continues to migrate, some sites of care are faced with reprocessing and sterilization challenges. With the new single-use endoscopes, reprocessing, transporting of dirty endoscopes, and repair costs are all eliminated. The video endoscopes provide a sharp image and can be used on multiple Carl Storrs video platforms. Please visit www.carlstoresnetwork1.com forward slash ENT to find out more. Hi, welcome to Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm Dr. Amber Luong, your host from the McGovern Medical School at the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston. I've invited Dr. Kai Zhao from the Ohio State University and Dr. Jaycar Nayak from Stanford University to discuss their recent paper entitled Inferior Meatus Augmentation Procedure Normalizes Nasal Airflow Patterns in Empty Nose Syndrome Patients via Computational Fluid Dynamics uh, Modeling. So hi, Kai and Jaycar. Happy New Year. Welcome to Scope It Out, and thank you for your time today to discuss your paper. Hi, Amber. Happy to be here. Yeah, I hope everyone had a good New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year, Amber. Good to see you. Good seeing you, and hopefully good riddance to 2020 and better times in 2021. But it's obviously starting out on a good note for you guys with this recent publication, so congratulations on that. So to get started, Jay Carr, you're very well known specifically in this field of empty nose syndrome. And I would say that uh, most people, at least in the otolaryngology, consider you the go-to guy with empty nose syndrome. What triggered this initial interest in this particular disease? Sure. So thanks for the good words on that. Probably about eight, maybe even nine years ago now, in my standard rhinology practice at uh, Stanford, naturally, it's a more advanced practice where we see patients who maybe aren't getting treatment or aren't being being, uh, readily able uh, to be figured out in more community settings. And so I get distilled more difficult and challenging patients. And and one or two patients came through who had persistent nasal obstruction after several surgeries by other well-known otolaryngologists in my area. And the cause of the nasal obstruction was unclear. And when I looked in their nose, actually, I saw a stark absence of tissue, specifically mm-hmm. the turbinate tissue in their nose. And slowly I started realizing that uh, I think that they had uh, this entity of Mentino syndrome. I started working them up with the things that we might be able to discuss, like uh, cotton testing, little things in my office, started understanding their symptoms a little bit more. And then I realized that more of the symptoms uh, were shared between some of the patients and then looked in the literature. And there were some uh, publications, especially by a gentleman named Dr. Uh, Stephen Hauser in, in Case Western. He really uh, started a lot of this as well. The details, I think, and some of the metrics and uh, quantitative assessment of the, these patients uh, weren't wasn't really there. So I then started doing some procedures to try to augment some of the tissues and empty spaces in their nose. And actually, these patients started getting better, feeling better, we're very mm-hmm. appreciative. 
And that started this whole uh, process. And now it's been, I don't know, maybe over 10, 12 publications later, many collaborator, collaborators from the fellows who work with us at Stanford uh, and residents to doctors like Andrew Thambu now in, in Canada, Kai Zhao at uh, Ohio State and others. So uh, it's really turned into a quite a fruitful labor of love in some ways. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, I've, I've seen that your team has really grown significantly at first starting at the NIDAS at Stanford. And now I was happy to see that Kai over at the Ohio State University joining you guys and you, as you mentioned, several other investigators throughout the country. So you've definitely brought empty nose syndrome to the forefront of having us think about what we can do, because I think most of us consider it almost like a hopeless cause and, and really not very many options. So in the study, I think one of the things, the crux of the study, it seems like you did this inferior meatus augmentation procedure and had scans before and after. Before we go actually into the data, I think it'd be important to give us some background exactly what is inferior meatus augmentation procedure and some thoughts on, on that before we really get into the paper. So briefly first, I'm just empty nose syndrome is just the idea that it's it's a disorder where patients feel that they have an altered sense of their nasal breathing that is typically related to turbinate tissue loss, whether that's from turbinate-related surgery or how patients have healed after surgery. It's led to issues with how the, how the turbinate and airflow seems to be going through their nose. At least that's how Kai and I have thought of it and others now who work with us. And the reason I say it that way is because it's also been theorized that it's a, a nerve damage-related problem, uh, okay. a nerve receptor uh, and, and neuroreceptor maybe a problem. And I think that at least for my assessment over the years, I think it's primarily, at least for most people, an airflow associated problem that, and again, related to the, this loss of turbine tissue. That issue then leads to numerous complaints from the patient that are unexpected, I think, for that tissue type. So when this tissue loss happens, then there's so many parameters. Patients complain about nasal obstruction, unexpected nasal obstruction but also nasal crusting, my nose is too open, nasal burning, unexpected panoply of, sim of symptoms that you wouldn't expect from that, that one area of the nose. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it also seems to lead to psychosocial issues and detriment to the patients in terms of their anxiety and depression. And that's what patients have reported to us. And we've uh, tried to quantitate and really tried to put into various manuscripts to really try to understand the psychosocial implications of this disease and disorder. Okay, with that as background, we try to do then to try to improve the lives of these patients. And what I would emphasize is that many of the patients that I've seen over the years, and so I've been over 200 now consults for Empino syndrome, yeah. is that a good majority, I don't know for everybody, but a good majority of patients um, can be diagnosed, first of all, and, and potentially treated when their symptoms can be addressed, sometimes again with diagnostic uh, tools like a cotton test or something like a gel filler things like that, that again, maybe we don't have time to talk about today. But when those patients do have an improvement in their, in their well-being and their symptoms, then I do think that they become candidates for something that we've termed the inferior augmentation procedure. And we just briefly have termed that IMAP surgery. Okay. What that means is that the inferior turbinate is one of the three sets of turbinates that we have in the nose. There's a low, middle, and high set of turbinates, and the low turbinate is the one that's just behind our nostrils. And that's the tissue that's typically reduced when patients uh, have a turbinate-related surgery to try to improve the nasal breathing. That tissue is reduced, but again, maybe it's either over-reduced 
or the tissue is lost to, to some way that is unpleasing or unpleasant and, and affecting the patient in a negative way. That space that's just underneath the inferior turbinate is called the inferior natus. And so by placing a, a graft or a transplanted uh, piece of tissue into that meatus space, one can create essentially a speed bump, a surgically created speed bump into this space where the turbinate, inferior turbinate used to be. And, but it's in the inferior which is just underneath the turbinate again. And it leads to a speed bump that crowds the airway and again, fills in that missing tissue space. And we wanted to assess whether that led to, led to improvement in the patient's symptoms. So we've previously published in a labringoscope paper, I think it was in 2019, that patients' symptoms dramatically improved. Their psychological parameters like anxiety, depression, their nasal symptom scores, the ones I mentioned before, dryness, burning, all remarkably and significantly improved after this IMAP procedure. But the mechanism for why that was happening was unclear. Got it. So that's when uh, Kai and I started talking, and we've been collaborating for a few years now on how do we better assess whether there's a mechanism that we can understand for their improvement. And we'll talk about that in a second, but what we literally do for the procedure is we make an incision just behind the nostril in the sidewall of the nose, and we make a little pocket. In a way, we're almost lifting up a carpet of tissue inside the nose and just create a little pocket. And then from there, we place a graft. And then typically, I use a cadaveric rib cartilage graft that we fashioned. We fashioned into a sort of a half dome shape. Mm-hmm. It's about a three to five, three and a half centimeter pill shaped in a way implant. And we try to slip it into that submucosal or subcuticular pocket in a way, and then make sure that it's a, in a sterile pocket and we use antiseptic and a lot of antibacterials in that space and then close it up and try to do that on either one side or both sides, depending on uh, how symptomatic the patient is. Got it. And you did mention, and I should have asked you this first, with the criteria for the study, as you mentioned, there are you know criteria for making the diagnosis of empty nose syndrome. And then the relatively, it seemed like strict criteria, but maybe this is the typical criteria for any candidate for IMAP. What was the criteria for the study? You talked about the cotton test or the filler injection test. Can you go over the, those criteria? So several years ago, when, again, we were first coming up with this, we've had to figure out who were empty nose syndrome patients. So we came up with a scoring system that we termed the ENS6Q. It's a six-item questionnaire that, mm-hmm. again, defines those six pretty specific symptoms for empty nose syndrome. Basically, if you have those symptoms and you score on a zero to five scale, those symptoms, nasal burning, nasal crusting, my nose feels too open, nasal suffocation, and you score above a score of 11, especially if you score above a score above 15, on that scale, again, anything can be zeros or zero to five. Then you typically, by my threshold, again, see hundreds of patients now, you have likely empty nose syndrome. So that was first, that enters you into that study. But then we do a cotton test. So we place a a small dry cotton pledget or a cotton plug in a way in the office, in the nose, where the tissue is missing. Again, the turbine tissue is missing. And try to, again, create almost a normal looking turbinate or a speed bump inside the nose. And then we ask the patient, and I, I try to blind the patients to what I'm doing. So I place cotton in various places and I ask them to score. I sometimes actually place nothing in their nose, ask them to score. So I try to be very objective and unbiased about it. And then okay. many times when they when I put the cotton plug only in, in the inferior and ask them to score, their score drops by greater than seven points. Sometimes their score drops by over 10 points. That's a highly significant uh, change in their breathing. Just in 10 minutes in my office, 
And so if you have a score of an ENS6Q above 15 for the study itself, a score above 11, okay. and then if you drop your score by seven points okay. because of the cotton test, then you're considered of someone who has emptiness syndrome that's reversible. Okay. And there, therefore you were included and eligible to be included in the study. And, okay. and then we allow them to get the CAT scans and be, and be assessed. In reading about the study, it sounds like then you included six patients and then you had pre-op and then post-operative at least at six months after the procedures scans that were then sent to Kai's team. I guess the question to you right. is how did you decide on six, first of all? Right. So then we also met, we actually meet, uh, uh, we, we talk pretty regularly, and then we always have a meeting at all the national meetings, especially when we're meeting in person. We came up with a criteria that, that first of all, both institutions had RIV approval. Once it was already approved at Sanford, then we sent that to Ohio State, and they, they approved the de-identified transfer of scans to Ohio State. And then patients agreed that, was, that would be the case, and they actually wanted to know what was going on after the surgery as well. So patients got a baseline CAT scan, and then we thought that six months would be a fair time because at least the longer you wait after surgery, the better. We felt that two to three months would be too much of the post-surgical changes and swelling that might be a little bit too variable. 12 months was, we'll never get a paper out. We just need to figure (laughs) out some things so we can get some reasonable data. I think most of us would say between four to six months, most patients uh, heal very, healing is pretty much final after a sinus surgery. Brain nasal surgery. We felt like six months would be a reasonable uh, time point that anyone would be able to understandably say that that's a final result. And so the changes that we were seeing are due to the surgery, not from edema or surgical swelling. But how did you choose on the six patients? It seemed like an odd number. Oh, honestly, we, we sent Kai the first six. Oh, <laughs> I see. It. Okay. Yeah. Like a pilot study initially. That's right. I think okay. that's right. If Kai, if you want to chime in, I think that's fair. We have patients constantly coming through at various time points. And then, then COVID hit as well. Patients were not necessarily coming in for their follow-ups. And so we were just, okay, well, let, we have at least five, six patients right now. Why don't we see what our data shows and see if there's something that uh, we can come up with. And the best thing also is that Kai also insisted that he not know the results of the ENS6Q. Like I said, the previous paper, when we did the IMAP procedure, many patients improved and most patients improved after that surgery. If you had emptiness syndrome, once you put the implant in, their symptoms really improved. But we didn't tell Kai which ones improved. We didn't tell Kai the, the, the nature of the drop, how much they dropped. So he was just objectively looking at the CAT scans based on his analysis and his expertise, just on the quantitative metrics alone. Great. Yeah, we, we are pretty much blinded by whatever the outcome is. And also, we are certainly continue the study and uh, hopefully we have more patients to, to continue to publish uh, when we have a larger data set. I understand. Kai, do you mind putting it in layman's terms or maybe for an otolaryngologist? It doesn't have to be purely layman's, but at least to an otolaryngologist, what is exactly a computational fluid dynamics? How do you go about analyzing these scans? Yes. So to explain this, this is a very common mechanical engineering uh, tool that okay. we use to simulate uh, flow, whether it's in wind tunnel or uh, in an airplane. So it's been widely used in automatic auto- automotive industry, aerospace industry, and a lot of software, commercial software, their standardized accuracy is being well tested. And we are among uh, you know, uh, quite a few teams that in the, around the country is applying them to the nasal airway to study 
uh, nasal airflow as well as nasal physiology. And compared to you know, you know, wind tunnel or airplane, the speed of flow in the nose is quite low. So the technical challenging is not there compared to you want to simulate a rocket uh, flying into space. But I think the challenge in, in terms of our kind of work is the, the anatomy. So, I mean, as any ENT knows, that uh, the nasal airway is uh, a pretty complex anatomy uh, compared to uh, a carp, for example. Uh, you have to rely on very good CAT scan. So, and Jay will uh, provide us a very high resolution CAT scan. CAT scan, I think, in 0.3 millimeter slices. And we also have to do a lot of work to convert the CAT scan accurately into a model. It's still uh, semi-automatically done, so a lot of our students have to be trained to double-check the anatomy, double-check the accuracy of the models. And then once these are all finished, we can use the software to um, simulate the flow. So uh, I think that the process is being validated. We have published several validation studies on it, and we actually published quite a few studies using this technique to uh, assess neuroscience surgery as well as symptoms in non-ENS patient populations as well. Yeah, and I think you showed very nicely in figure one, an example of some of the analysis that you did. One concept that you did introduce in the paper is this, and I'm probably going to mispronounce this, Quinata effect? Yeah, Quinata effect. Okay, So that's So actually that has to be one of the puzzling, as my my background is engineer, so I have a no, almost no uh, clinical uh, background. But when I heard the term empty nose syndrome, as engineer, that doesn't make any sense. So if someone's complaining It doesn't to make you, any sense to otolaryngologists. But, <laughs> as engineer, but, but as an engineer, it does it even more because as you have no obstruction in your nose, no resistance, where this complaints come about, why Got the it. patient complain of obstruction? So we actually did a couple of studies early and before I you know, met Jay and when we look at EMT nose syndrome. So we find out that actually also this study shows that too, is that when you insert something, uh, augment uh, the inferior turbinate, actually the resistance doesn't increase that much. So there is not a significant increase in resistance. So the improvement is not due to the resistance increase, okay. as well as the symptom itself is probably not due to resistance itself. People have said that it probably empty nose syndrome is due to too low nasal resistance. But we have seen other patients who have radical, undergo radical turbo reduction surgery, but they are fine. So if mm-hmm. we compare the two, their resistance is exactly, almost exactly the same, published that, right? So it's not a resistance issue. So what is this? So one of our previous publications, we showed that actually it's a weird imbalance or distorted flow. Okay. So most of these patients, empty nose patients have the inferior airway expanded or inferior turbine removed or reduced then the inferior airway expanded. But their flow goes to middle meatus. Doesn't make any sense because if you remove the inferior turbinate, you try to encourage or induce more flow going there, right? But actually the flow goes to the, to the middle meatus. Actually in this patient, in, in figure one, you can also see this patient before the surgery, there's a very sharp red spot in the middle meatus. Uh-huh, I see that. Even though it seems like inferior meatus has a wider, much wider airway. Mm-hmm. But once the implant goes in, it actually redirects the flow a little more to the inferior. So that's also engineering is difficult to understand because you, you, you put something in there, but flow actually go more there. 
that doesn't make any sense at all. So what we are uh, hypothesized, this is probably still hypothesized, is that probably due to a quantum effect. Basically, when you attach a surface to a stream of jet, probably you do this in middle school experiment, right? You put you, you run the faucet and put your finger to the to the flow of water. The mm -hmm. water comes sometimes attached to us to your finger. Hmm. Doesn't move away from finger, but sometimes attached to it. So this probably is the same principle that you input something, a turbulent is like a bulge. But once a bulge is there, it seems to be a trapping flow or diverge flow towards inferior airway instead of letting free flow to the middle near this. So when we think fluid mechanics is not only a resistant bound flow, right? Mm -hmm. So one example I often give that if you, let's say if you have a air sprayer and if you spray a jet of air into an empty room, the resistance in an empty room is low everywhere. But mm -hmm. why does that jet will keep going straight forward? That will probably replicate some of the findings in empty nose because when we breathe, the flow entering nostril going upwards. So then it has to turn 180 degrees down going to the, to the lung. So this is a jet without any attachment, without any bound to that flow, the flow was shooting upwards. That's probably what we're seeing in some empty nose syndrome patient, that flow is just shooting unconstricted into okay. the inferior middle meatus. But the inferior turbulence maybe exists not to create resistance, so to say, or create more surface. It definitely creates more surface, but maybe it functions to diverge the flow to balance the flow, to divert it to more balanced, well distributed, so that everywhere in the nose is is it has some flow in it and it has more um, capability of, of moisturize the flow. So I think maybe there's this, this balance of flow is more important or distorted flow is more important in the symptomology of uh, empty yeah. nose. Still my uh, hypothesis, we haven't, this is a very preliminary just guessing hypothesis and we haven't done a uh, very rigorous so thorough testing of it. Just uh, allow me to just chime in on one or two thoughts here. One is that it's fascinating what yeah. Kai is talking about. And and the thing is that I was fascinated two, eight, nine years ago. I just put, patients are, are highly symptomatic. They have all kinds of issues and, and they have all these complaints in my office. And I just place a small one half cent piece of cotton in their nose and suddenly they light up and they mm -hmm. smile. And there's like, what, I don't know what you just did, but just don't take that cotton out of my nose. I feel so much better. And it's in, in less than a minute. And it's shocking. 20 years of symptoms. Yeah. And or two years of symptoms. And they'll say this to you. That's why, again, it's like, it felt like resistance to me. And they say that, and they'll say the term, I feel like there's more drag. When I draw in air and down my nose, I feel like there's a drag. So I also thought it was resistance. I think I thought it was resistance. But interestingly, we, we're not finding it when we do rhinomanometry. We don't see increased resistance when we do that study. We haven't published that yet. Kai isn't seeing it from his studies either. So it's interesting what they're saying, and maybe just the words they're using, is maybe this the drawing of air towards the new tissue type or towards this cotton. And so it's dra dragging along that structure or along that surface, which is a new way of thinking about turbinates and how turbines are, in a way, remodeling airflow. Interesting. So what I'm hearing is, so a couple of take-home messages for our listeners is that one, it seems, at least from your findings, that empty nose syndrome does not seem to be a resistance phenomenon. 
that purely resistance phenomenon. If it, if it resistance is the only factor, we have more. We would have more empty nodes into patients. Got it. So it doesn't seem to be a resistance phenomenon, but rather that the inferior meatal augmentation procedure seems to alter the airflow away from this middle meatus area where it's it's aberrantly drawn to in patients with empty nose syndrome. And by adding this augmentation, by altering then the airflow away from the middle meatus and maybe more towards the inferior meatus area, it seems to negate some of the symptoms. Another finding that I found quite fascinating is this correlation, Kai, I think maybe you were the one who put it together, I don't know, but in one of the figures, you guys talk about this correlation between the symptoms and the the imaging data, I guess the airflow. Yeah, so the, we, we find that, you know, um, the, the reduction of the middle a flow towards the middle meatus, the improvement uh, so, in the symptom. So with more diversion away from the yes. middle meatus, you saw better improvement in terms of symptom scores. Was there, you, so Jekar, you brought up the six symptoms. Was there any one particular symptom that seemed to be driving that correlation? Did you look at some of these individual symptoms? No, we didn't. I think we have a larger sum. Yeah. large sample size enough to look at subcomponent, right. but okay. certainly if we have a larger sample size, we can look at you know, individual Is there any from experience perspective, maybe not uh, uh, specifically, but any experience perspective that, that gives you guys a, a feeling that any one particular of these symptoms are driving some of the improvement, like that, that the change in the airflow is driving some of these symptoms more so than others? Uh, and that's a hard one to uh, say, but the, it, it, some patients really just debilitated by suffocation and that's their symptom. Others say just my nose feels too open and the burning is too much. It's just, it is, it is, it's not all over the place, but there's a, there's, it is only six symptoms, but I do see a quite, quite a wide range within those six. But yeah, at least it seems, I would say also that symptom is because of abnormal airflow pattern as well. Like that air is either hitting the nose in, in, a, in an unusual way when the turbinate tissue is missing as hitting the exposed remnant infirmatus or the exposed middle meatus or the exposed tur- ends of the turbinate that are now left behind from scarring and whatever. It's hitting that in such a way that the patient is very displeased and mm. leading to that burning and something because they do improve. They do improve. Why is it that burning improves? Why is it that, yeah. that, that dry? I mean, dryness is, is, a, is a common thing. And I think that's a pretty universal one that really improves just when you put a speed bump in the nose and let airflow be a little bit more contained or restricted from an eight millimeter airway from septum to sidewall, septum to sidewall on left and right sides, you make it like a three millimeter airway mm-hmm. with yeah. a cartilage graft in between. It just seems to lead to very much high patient satisfaction. Yeah. yeah. So I, I see this correlation that you guys painted in the paper, but what about the extreme? What about those patients that completely fail the augmentation procedure did you look at the airflow in, in any of these patients? And is it in fact that they have no change in their resistance pattern? Did you have any no, there? That was that was a tough one because if you're fail, if it's I don't have too many in that category, thankfully, because we try to highly select the patients who go to surgery because of we I uh, they have to come to my office at least two or three times. They have to be tested twice in a blinded fashion to what I'm doing. They have to drop by seven points in the contest twice. Sometimes if I'm not sure if they're, maybe it's a five point drop, maybe it's a four point drop and I'll do a 
gel filler injection and they then have two or three months to assess their symptoms. So many times, if any of those things are positive, have, they have a good improvement in their symptoms and reduction in their symptoms for that's quantifiable and measurable because we have, they answer online questionnaires to our encrypted database and everything. Okay. Then only are they candidates for IMAP. So we don't have too many failures. I do say, I, I must say, I have a few who uh, who didn't seem like either I, I didn't select them or they didn't, they felt it was too much or they were too blocked. But I've, I have removed implants from a few patients, but thankfully mm-hmm. it's only been, it's under 10. It's probably under five patients. But Any pre, um, pre-op and post-op uh, CT scans in those patients that happened to have failed? Or you only did that particular, specifically for the study? Oh, okay. So in terms of study, yeah, the, the patient who went to six, seven months, now they're just coming back in for follow-up and then they got a, a, a post-treatment uh, CAT scan by the protocol and my research program covered that cost. So that was that, or sometimes they have symptoms and their insurance might cover it. But but then those who came in and maybe those few who, who are not in that category, they came back within, you know, two months. Okay. And they were- We certainly can, you know, include this patient population who failed, you know, augmentation in the future. And you can, uh, Jay will, you know, definitely keep me, continue to keep me blinded so we can, you know, test whether or not flow pattern changes can predict their failure. Yeah, I mean- Or improvement for other patients. Yeah, it's true. I I do try to get a CAT scan on those patients too, just to see if there's anything I'm missing, if there's something abnormal. Is it that they had a new sinusitis and maybe that's what they're attributing to their failure? Anything I'm missing, but- but then at least I have that data and I might be, we might be able to do something with that. Like those who don't do well with IMAP or surgery, is there something we can learn from that too? I think that's very reasonable to do. Um, the final question I had for you is empty nose syndrome, as you started out with, is fairly uncommon, luckily. So are there any implications that either one of you can think of for your findings on patients with nasal congestion? Are procedures for nasal congestion right now would be managing the inferior turbinate hypertrophy or moving over the middle turbinate, or are there implications in some of our sinus surgery procedures? Once upon a time, we would, you know, treat that middle meatus, middle turbinate as, as precious, and we don't touch it. And I think more and more people are feeling more comfortable resecting at least partially the middle turbinate. Any implications in some of the more common scenarios that uh, we as otolaryngologists encounter? To start on my end, I, I get asked often, you see all these patients, so how do you, what's your surgery? What do you do for the turbinates and how do you manage the middle turbinate and things like that? My general philosophy, and I tell all my residents and fellows this, and is that the all vertebrate animals have six turbinates and they must be there for a reason. We are somehow unlucky in that we're the ones who seem to have altered turbinate hypertrophy in the inferior meatus, in the, the inferior turbinates. And so we get procedures done on our turbinates. Most animals don't, obviously. But the take home, therefore, to me is that maintain the contour and shape of the turbinates as much as you can. Yes, turbinate hypertrophy is definitely a problem. It's one of the most common procedures done in otolaryngology. And I have, I've done thousands over the years and patients are extremely gratified and uh, happy and, and, and content with their procedures and for years. But what I try to do is preserve the, the tubular shape, the finger-like shape of the turbinate and the inferior meatus and middle meatus, and try not to ever touch the superior turbinate when I can. Same thing with the middle turbinate, by the way. I try to just, it's there for a reason. I do, at all costs, I try to maintain a middle turbinate or partial middle, middle turbinate because it's part of the airflow. And, and again, I don't think we know enough 
just like we didn't know a lot about mucosa. We didn't know a lot about mm-hmm. vocal cord function and things like that. We don't know enough, I don't think, about turbinate biology. And we're, we're learning something just now about how uh, airflow might be contacting and interacting with the turbinates in, in a certain balanced way that I think we need to appreciate and respect. Because when, you know, while thankfully it's rare, if we're mm-hmm. at least in part contributing to the, some of these patients having these this issue happen, this disorder of syndrome happen, and it's debilitating for a lot of these patients. It really causes a significant change in their quality of life and detriment to their quality of life. It's worth understanding that better and doing everything we can to avoid it and prevent it for their sake and our sake uh, as, yeah. as a specialty. Agreed. Kai, anything else to add? Yes, as a baseball basic scientist, my, I think the takeaway or the extension of the study is to really look at the important functions of the turbinate. How do we better understand it? Frankly, I don't think we have a you know, very good understanding of it. In terms of turbinate hypertrophy or septal deviation, in terms of patients' general complaints of nasal obstruction, we don't know why actually patients complain of nasal obstruction. Is this resistance? There are numerous studies shown that rhinomanometry measured nasal resistance or acute measured, you know, cross-section area doesn't correlate with patient symptoms. Mm-hmm. So what is a patient complain really complain about? My own hypothesis is that it's, it's, it's about how we sense the flow. We take a breath of air, it's always cooler, so you, you feel it, you feel it cooling, you feel it maybe mechanical uh, stress, and that tells the brain, oh, I'm breathing. Whether or not uh, this could be diminished either by a dysfunctional turbinate or a, a DV septum, or it's by sensory interruptions can cause those kind of obstruction, and we have to have a better understanding of it. And also, in terms of t- turbinate physiology, why does turbinate hypertrophy in the first place? That's mm-hmm. always my question as a basic scientist, right? You have a septal deviation. You always have the contralateral turbinate hypertrophy to matching with the, the yeah, septum. That's true. Yeah. Why does it happen? You know, you know, maybe the turbinate hypertrophy is because some of the balance is breaking and the turbinate just grow without limitation. I have also heard that patients often have revision surgery probably because the turbinate reduce them they may grow again, they may hypertrophy again. So what is the really the cause of a turbinate hypertrophy or the, fun, uh, the, the distorted anatomy in the patient knows how we better treat them, not too aggressively, but hopefully can be have a more uh, addressing the really the cause of their symptoms. That's actually my, hopefully my, our future research goal. Hopefully, you know, we can join Jay and other ENT surgeons on this quest. What? No, no, we, we we have several projects in the pipeline right now, and and hopefully maybe a grant application soon. So we're still so just you know chipping away at it, but but thankfully we have we've established this. And but by the way, we should acknowledge the hardworking members of our teams. They're just they're so dedicated to this and and help with the patient recruitment and patient follow up and making sure the databases are are up to date and 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 current and everything. And so thank them. And Jen, first author from Kai's group, Jennifer Malik, did a great job. Excellent. It does sound like you've got many more years of collaboration ahead of you. As, as we're just speaking now, it, it sounds like I can see the ideas popping into your brain of various different projects going forward. You know, I just wanted to thank you both for your time and expertise on this, on this topic and really enjoyed reading your paper. And, and thank you again for your contribution and looking forward to some future projects and papers that you guys put out. So with that, again, Happy New Year. Thank you again, and maybe talk to you again soon in the future. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Take care. Happy New Year. Happy New Year.
Thanks for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast are those of podcast hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or the sponsors.